Hello and welcome to this episode of the Joyful Friar podcast. I'm Father Nathan Castle, your host. On our last episode, I introduced a new story that will be included in a book that I hope to have out by the end of this year. The story was uh, Abraham and his family. They were people who died in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. You can go back and find that episode. It was the, the previous one before this one. In the little dream, it was one of the shortest I've ever had. It didn't have a narrative like uh, a lot of the stories that I receive in a dream. It was just like a photograph, like a little family of a, an African man, uh, his wife, and what appeared to be about a 12-year-old daughter, as though posed for a photograph, and him smiling and waving. And I woke up. It felt like a received dream, not just my own psychobabble. I wrote it down. And then when I could, I got with prayer partners and explored that. We were told by St. Charles Lawanga, who I know because I'm a Catholic priest, he shows up, his feast is on the calendar. It rolls around every year. He is the first sub-Saharan African. There were earlier uh, African saints that really are that look more Arab along the um, the northern edge of Africa, along the Mediterranean from the early centuries of the church. But Charles Luanga uh, died in 1885. He was martyred with a group of companions. He showed up and assured me that, yes, indeed, this was a contact. And there is a family that I and my prayer partners were invited to assist a bit. In the format that we use uh, on the podcast, I tell a story as I did last time. And then the second part of the trilogy of that story is what we call compassionate response. Very often that's based on feedback from people who have heard the story and in whom it provokes some question often born out of their own experience or their own suffering. That's why I call it compassionate response. And then the third part of the trilogy is the spiritual practice that I think uh, arises from the story. That'll be for next week. But for, for this week, we're doing the compassionate response aspect of uh, pondering the story of Abraham and his family. Again, it'll be available to you in full in uh, the third in the Afterlife Interrupted series that subtitle of that book is going to be called Please Let Me Explain, because I'm choosing stories that I think in the course of the person's crossing, the way that they explain the before, during, and after their violent death, uh, especially what's gone on since then, will have some value to viewers and readers. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my own process. I'm a, a Dominican, and behind my name are the letters O. P for order of preachers. Preaching is important to me. It's part of my identity. I was taught that before the preacher presumes to speak before the gathered assembly, for example, at a mass, and presumes to say something inspired by the Holy Spirit or something that edifies people, the first step is to first let the Holy Spirit talk to you, the preacher, Make sure that whatever the word that you're pondering, usually a scripture verse, has found a place in you and you've mulled it over and you've asked yourself, what does this mean to me or how is this speaking to me? I was taught that 
you have no business as a preacher getting up and speaking before other people until you first allow the Holy Spirit to take that text, that story, and uh, run it through your own heart. Then you go on after that to crafting a homily, preparing a talk. Well, what I'm going to do in this podcast is give you that intermediate step that um, would precede a full preaching. I'm really just telling you how this story affected me. That's a long-winded way of saying that. I'm, I'm sharing with you how this story has affected me. As it's turned out, I'm writing this book, and the uh, this story will be in it. And so I've lived with this story for several days now, going over it word by word and editing it down, uh, trying to get it uh, edited into the fewest words I can that still has kind of a punch. I've asked Abraham and uh, St. Charles Lawanga and Mary, uh, who came in this story as Our Lady of Rwanda, to be with me. So I feel like I've been steeped in this story for some time now. The basics of it are that they were minding their business in 1994 uh, when a sudden calamitous madness hit their country and people of different tribes who had lived side by side for a long while in peace suddenly became genocidal. The, the group that Abraham and his family belonged to was on the targeted end of that madness. They ran to their Catholic church where he was an, a leader and a catechist and hid, hoping that they would find sanctuary there. Again, he, his wife, and his 12-year-old daughter. They hid and hoped that when the door opened, it would they would see the face of a rescuer, but instead they saw the face of a murderer. The ghastly, awful truth is they were killed with machetes. In the dream, he just smiled at me and didn't show me any of that awfulness, thanks be to God. As is the case with all of these afterlife-interrupted stories that I'm invited into, there's always on the other end of it, some resolution and some healing. And the people in the stories have healed to the point where they're making a progression from one kind of therapeutic mode in the afterlife to one that's freer and where they require less of a concentrated healing attention that they needed earlier. I've read over, there are two accounts. One of them is the initial a crossing story where we first went into protected prayer. Uh, instead of getting a guardian angel, as I said earlier, we got St. Charles Lawanga. He explained a few things. He didn't stay with us to, for too very long. Then we got Abraham himself. And then we got uh, Mary, Mother of Jesus, under the title of Our Lady of Rwanda. Then there's a second story because we don't tell any of these stories in public without going back to the people involved and asking their permission. In that second uh, story, that second transcript, uh, there's just a lot of richness, and I want to comment upon a little of it in this podcast. But we're, we're dealing with people, a whole family, that were living in peace with their neighbors when suddenly some of their neighbors turned on them and murdered them. And not in an isolated act, but in a a regional genocide. It's just horrible to contemplate. But the thing I'm grateful for this ministry that I've been given is that at, we all survive our deaths. And even if they occur in ways that are, are ghastly for a Catholic Christian, like crucifixion of Jesus, there's still a resolution. There's still 
resurrection. There's still Easter morning. There's still peace to be had on the other side. I've seen that repeated over and over again. In the case of um, Abraham, because he was a Catholic and not just a, a Sunday observant Catholic, he was a catechist. He was he taught children. He went to seminars to learn more about his faith and how to, to help uh, others appropriate it more deeply. They were very committed to their the practice of their Catholic Christian faith. And when it when they needed safety, they ran to their local Catholic parish church, hoping to be safe there. In the end, they were not. This particular podcast is going to be a little bit heavier on uh, the Roman Catholic uh, thinking and processing than some others that I've done. That's really because that's what's presented. That's the way that Abraham and his family moved through this horrific experience. The most important thing takeaway for me is how beautifully Abraham has moved through a process of forgiving. He said that he's met plenty of other people who died in that genocide who are still riveted by the, the ghastly details of what happened to them in their final moments. Well, he said, I could have done that too. And he said, maybe I received a special grace. He didn't credit himself. He said, maybe I received a special grace, or maybe it was I had a habit of forgiving already. But when this happened, I tried right away to start forgiving as soon as I could. He gave a, an example of um, going to bed without brushing one's teeth. He said, why would I want to do that? It would just allow my my teeth to rot. Why would I go to sleep without forgiving? He made that analogy. He just thought that would be bad for him. So he didn't go into a lot of uh, detail about it, but he just said plainly, I already had the habit of trying to forgive as quickly as I could and as thoroughly as I could. He said that's probably helped me a lot. He also said that because he was used to being a church leader, they, his his team in the afterlife asked that he and his wife be exemplars to others. He said there are people who are really stuck in how they died and how awful it was and how unjust and so on. And uh, sometimes people are prone to say, I'll never get over it. Haven't you heard that? It, it breaks my heart when I hear people, uh, especially parents who've lost a child, say, I'll never get over it. Well, it, that that's another way of saying this is such a deep hurt that I can't imagine ever getting over it. But saying I'll never get over it is it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Abraham said that he, he said we're sometimes brought before people as examples of persons who went through something as atrocious as you did, who are brought to the front to say, please don't persist in thinking that way. Don't make this even worse. Uh, just work on forgiving a little at a time. Just do what's possible and uh, and and keep trying. He, he, he compared it to a stain. He said, I, I don't think I'm finished all the forgiving I need to do. He said, it's a stubborn stain, and I think it needs more scrubbing. He used the word purgatory to describe the place he was and the place he was going to, like they were different levels of the same thing. Um. And, but he didn't 
dwell on lack of progress. Sometimes people can kind of be hard on themselves and think they should have accomplished something already. He wasn't that way with himself. He was very gentle with himself, saying, no, I, I know that I've done much of that already, enough that we're even exemplars to other people, but there's more to be done. And he said, it's more than I can do on my own. So there's a wisdom in him that um, it reminds me of the 12 steps of AA. You don't stride into an AA meeting as, as an alcoholic saying, I'm here to cure myself. Uh, you, the first thing you're asked to do is identify yourself and turn the problem over to your higher power, which just has lots of wisdom in it, I think. So anyway, forgiveness and the necessity of staying at it as a Catholic Christian uh, one of the last words spoken by Jesus as he was dying in a horrific way because people wanted him to die that way. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's my beloved. And oftentimes I'll say to Jesus, I don't know how you said that. How could that possibly be true? They just drove nails through your hands and feet. How could that possibly be true? But nevertheless, give me some of what you got because I don't want it to retain any anger of any kind that has to do with feeling that, that uh, somebody owes me. I just want to forgive as quickly as I can whenever there's a need to. We can all do that. And even if you're not a Catholic or a Christian, I think Jesus is a universal person. You can speak to him in your heart and just say, I heard you're good at forgiving. Would you help me forgive this thing that I'm struggling with? One thing I liked about getting to know Abraham is he didn't seem the least bit shocked that his life and his family's circumstance would be the focus of St. Charles Lawanga and Mother Mary. They're famous people, especially Mother Mary. Other people might have thought, well, you know, how in the world, why is she interested in me? He didn't have that, I think, because he was, he was well catechized and he had a, a faith that knew she's my mother and why wouldn't she care about me? I think that's really helpful. I have lots of saint friends, and that doesn't make me any big deal. We're already all a big deal. We're all made in the image of God. Uh, what else do you need? He accepted the help that came to him, and he didn't balk at being helped by people as notable as saints, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. He took direction well, too. You could hear it all through the way that he spoke, that after dying as he did, maybe it was that he was a leader, and he was used to the dynamic of leading and being led, have either being in charge of the the the, the growth and development of others, including a daughter. Uh, but when he was in this afterlife circumstance, it seems like he submitted gently and uh, and readily to the help that was offered to him. Not everybody in the afterlife does that. Sometimes they're just in, they're too confused or too angry or too something to receive their new circumstance and be still and uh, be helped by uh, people who want to try to help them. He didn't feel cheated, at least he didn't express that. He was a youngish man with, they only had the one child, this 12 year old, but there was nothing in him that spoke about a career that was interrupted. He didn't speak about extended family or being ripped from loves that were important to him. Sometimes in the afterlife, I've, I've encountered that where people have some some sense of um, entitlement to a long life or to a peaceful death, and he got neither. He had a shorter life and a violent death, but in his afterlife, he seemed to just play the cards that are dealt. 
I, I love playing cards and that's one of the things I like about them. In the course of an evening, you might have lots of hands and they have different things in them. And sometimes the hand that you get is just no good at all, but you don't have to be all upset about it. Things turn. And in his case, I just liked the fact that he had a kind of evenness to him that uh, didn't leave him even when he was the victim of such an atrocious murder. He didn't ever mention a desire for revenge or even justice. It's a commonplace in American culture. I've lived here all my life that people say this in the media on a regular basis where there's been some murder, uh, some atrocity and maybe a, a court case, and someone will say something like, she'll never rest in peace until she gets justice. That's making an assumption about a, a person. And my experience with the afterlife is that everybody's different. There's not one size fits all way of, of dying and, and leaving and going on here. And it may be that some people who die at the hand of another really do in the afterlife get all in a tangle about whether or not the their killer was caught or uh, properly judged and sentenced. He just didn't care. It never came up. I'd like to be more like Abraham, like in my own life. If something like that befell me, that's the attitude I'd want to take. Well, that's water under the bridge. There's always a next moment, and I'd like to live in the next moment and do the best I can in the next moment, not be doing too much looking over my shoulder about what ought to happen to other people. One interesting thing that I really enjoyed uh, hearing about, he talked about his daughter, who was 12. He said in the next year, she might have been uh, she might have been taller than both of them. She was nearly grown. They died in 1994, but already Western culture was having a lot of inroads in Rwanda in ways that a 12 year old was growing up very different from her parents or her grandparents, especially in terms of how much independence he used that word. And then he kind of tried to walk it back a little bit. But he said it still sort of fits. She was already more independent-minded at 12 than, than either of her parents or grandparents would have been at that age. And then he said that in, in this afterlife, she's been more like a teen or a, a late adolescent who spends a lot of time apart from her parents and checks in with them from time to time, that she's kind of gone off on her own. And he said he was kind of relieved that as a parent, he didn't need to be hovering over her trying to keep her safe. And then he kind of said, kind of with a sense of humor. I wasn't even able to do that in the end anyway. We all died violently. I couldn't keep her safe. And now here in the afterlife, I don't really need to be worried about that kind of thing. She's just fine. He kind of compared her to um, American uh, adolescents like college students who might be away at school, but who come home to do the laundry or check in from time to time. He said she does check in from time to time and they're happy to see her but they also, both both he and his wife, felt a little relieved that that set of responsibilities had largely moved from them and they were freer to go on to other things. He mentioned that his wife had miscarried several times and they only had the one daughter. But that that, that is, he was funny because he said his wife doesn't, my wife doesn't want to talk and she's letting me be her spokesperson, which is something she hardly ever did. Uh, at one point in the story, he said... Um, uh, I don't mean to assume that I'm the chieftain of this family. He said, my wife and my daughter were strong women and we were a household of three chiefs. But in this particular crossing business, he was going to um, be the spokesperson and he was relieved that 
his wife and daughter didn't have to do anything more active in the crossing that he could kind of take care of it for all of them. He spoke about his wife would would have loved to have had more children to raise and nurture as a mother, and that part of what she's enjoyed doing in the afterlife is being in the child care section. That's what he called it. He said there are children here who precede their parents in death, and there is accommodation for them. There are people who love to be around little children. He said it's they don't all have to do the same thing, but he said there are many blessings to be a part of the natural development that happens on the earth or after it as little ones mature. He was saying that if it were on the earth, they have to learn a, a specific earthly language or maybe two if they're in a bilingual family. He said here they don't have to learn language, but they still have to learn how to form their thoughts and express them. And they need to learn that from somebody who already knows how to do it. So there's something like afterlife schools for little kids and that his wife was happily engaged in, in that work. It gave her joy. He also brought up a topic that sometimes Catholic and Christian people will be perplexed about. There's a scripture where Jesus is being confronted by a group of uh, Jews in, in the Pharisees and Sadducees were two principal parties within Judaism of Jesus's day. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife and the Sadducees didn't. And so it was one of those things, the Hatfields and McCoys or Republican Democrats, they can fight about it uh, and never finish an argument. Well, Jesus was once confronted by Jews who did not believe there was an afterlife, and they wanted to take him on about it. And so they were nasty. They told a stupid story of a woman who married husband after husband after husband. They all died, and then they all uh, ended up in this ridiculous afterlife idea that Jesus believed in. And who's going to be her husband now? Uh, and Jesus says something like, there's no taking or giving in marriage they all live like the angels. Well, some Christian people have taken that passage to mean there is there are no married couples in the afterlife. On the other hand, I've done many funerals and been around many uh, people grieving the loss of parents, especially uh, who had beautiful marriages, who presume that now uh, mom is finally back together with dad or whatnot. It's very commonplace for people to imagine that, that people who loved each other in long, happy marriages would want to be around each other in the afterlife. And he said as much. He said, well, we're not, we, we might not be the way that we were before, but he said, I love my wife. And he called her my wife. I love my wife more than I ever did when we were still upon the earth. He said, we don't have to be together all the time, but very often we choose to be. Anyway, I, I, I liked that idea. So those are some of my reflections on the compassionate response to Abraham's story. If you remembered from hearing it last time, if you heard that podcast, Mother Mary showed up for them and brought them into the, the next afterlife realm in a, in a playful way, kind of on a toy by pulling them on a little sled. We'll deal more with that next time and with spiritual practice. What are some spiritual practices that might arise uh, out of this story? Well, again, I'm still writing up this story for a third book in the series. You see the, the book over there over my shoulder. Uh, I hope to have this out uh, in the next few months, and then you can uh, go read it in more detail than what I've been able to describe here. But for right now, I'm Father Nathan Castle. I'm grateful that you've been with me on the Joyful Friar podcast today. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joyful Friar. You can visit me at nathan-castle.com. 
Send me a message by clicking the contact button. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make a donation by clicking the donate button. See you next time. God bless.